0: Listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. This week's guest is Alma Katsu. And wow, was I excited to have this discussion! Like a lot of other readers, I discovered Alma through her historical horror novels, The Deep, The Fervor, and The Hunger. And it wasn't until after I had read those books that I discovered that she also writes these kind of political thrillers that are based around like the CIA and the FBI and you know intelligence in general and national security. And the reason is, is because she spent an entire career in that line of work. And so when she wrote Red Widow, it was very much based on um, just kind of her experience and in her life. And then the the book that's just come out, Red London, same thing. Uh, She tells me in this conversation that you'll hear in just a moment that these books, to her, it's like second nature, being able to write them and how she loves writing historical horror. But these ones, it's just like these things are in her brain and she knows how to write them. So fascinating. And the books are so delightful. I will say they are connected, but you do not need to read them in order. You can read Red London before you read Red Widow or vice versa. Uh, This discussion is about a home away from home that has become, you know, a place that she loves to be with her partner. Uh, after she retired, they moved to a, a quiet town in West Virginia, and that is uh, all the stuff we talk about in this discussion. I don't really want to get into it too much because she breaks down basically how they fell in love with this place, how their lives are are different but somewhat connected to the hustle and bustle. Of living in Washington D.C. and the surrounding areas, and it's just really, really fascinating. It's it's incredible to hear how her life has changed and uh, what it entails for her now. So you're going to hear that in all just a moment. Before that, I want to get to a book recommendation for you. Keeping in line with the theme of like mystery and secret plots, uh, I wanted to bring up the first conspiracy by past guest of the show, Brad Meltzer, as well as uh, Josh Mensch. This is a really, really incredible story about basically a untold piece of American history that reveals how there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. It's really fascinating. Uh, Brad, just like Almo, writes these books that are somewhat based in truth. He he writes them in a way that really makes them feel like fiction. So uh, if you've never read one of Brad Meltzer's adult books, uh, kind of his twisty, again, mystery thriller type stories, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington is really, really great. Highly recommend it. If you'd like some customized book recommendations from me, you can always find me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. Send me any review or ratings that you've posted of the podcast, uh, You know, whether it's in Spotify or Apple Podcasts or iHeartRadio, wherever you listen. Uh, just show me that you've done that and I will happily give you some customized book recommendations there. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Passions and Prologues. I do book reviews and book reveals and stuff all the time over there. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. I am so excited for you all to hear this conversation with Alma Katsu, author of the brand new book, Red London, Passions and Prologues. Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Okay, Alma, just before we started recording, you told me that you have a curveball for me. So what is something you're super passionate about that we're going to discuss today?
1: Well, it happened a few years ago and it completely changed my life and my husband's life because when COVID hit, we had decided right before COVID hit, we had decided that we wanted to get a little vacation place. Mm -hmm. I had retired from government. I was still writing, but I was super busy as a consultant and I was always running into Northern Virginia and I had a crazy, horrible life. And so um, we decided to help with the writing that we would look for a cabin kind of close to home we couldn't find it and just on a, a fluke we ended up going what was like for us we thought outside of the radius about 3 hours away in west virginia which mm-hmm. really i'd never been to in my life and we went to this vacation place i had heard about and fell completely in love with it uh bought property built a house <laughs> And in the middle of nowhere, I mean, it's literally in the middle of nowhere, we're on a mountain and we back up to a national forest and, you know, went from being these busy Washington, D.C. based people to now living in the middle of nowhere um, and just loving it completely. But it was, you know, you had to have the determination of I don't know what it it was really a, a force of will to make this happen okay
0: I I love this so much so I I'm in Cleveland Ohio I'm born and raised in Northeast Ohio and when I was in growing up and in high school and in college I played baseball and so that meant traveling a lot to random places so I've actually driven a lot through West Virginia my dad and I like to joke about a tournament I played there in Bexley West Virginia which is also in the middle of nowhere but I want to ask, okay, so where is this and and what caused you to fall in love with a place that, to be fair, is normally very much a drive through state for people as they're going someplace else?
1: Right. Absolutely. We had no idea. And we were kind of afraid when we were going to tell our oh so sophisticated friends and family, right, that they were just going to go, you know, you've lost your mind. And a few of them do still tease us, but this, the place we found is amazing. It is like a singular thing. Um, So it's called Lost River. You can actually look it up because there's been like articles written about it. We didn't know that at the time. And it's just over the Virginia line. So we're on the other side of the Shenandoah. We're right up against the George Washington National Forest. Mm -hmm. And it's very remote and it's in the hills, but it's not the rest of West Virginia, which I haven't even seen yet because I haven't had the chance to get out of the house, which all looks lovely. But, you know. Very rural. It's very rural where we are. We are surrounded by cattle farms and poultry farms, but the neighborhood we live in is unique. So a couple decades ago, some guys built this resort called the Guest House, which has been a magnet for the D.C. gay community for two decades. Mm -hmm. And so the, the neighborhood sort of built up around it and it's very liberal and progressive, as you can imagine. Yeah. And it's now, uh, it used to be the majority would be gay couples own the properties here. Now I understand it's about half and half. Mm-hmm. And it's um, almost exclusively like second homes for Washingtonians. And so the mix of people here are amazing, you know, just amazing. I, I, you know, there's ex other ex-CIA people besides me. There's been journalists for the Washington Post. There's just every tons of doctors of course mm-hmm. more lawyers than than you probably want concentrated in one area but but everything and um most of them are childless like us most of them are retirement age like us and it's just a really fun fun environment especially on the weekends because there's not a lot of full timers like me and my mm-hmm. husband and the weekends people come out and it's a huge social community i have more friends here and i'm busier socially here than i was in you know dc
0: I want to ask about the specifics of like the home and all these different things. But the first thing I want to ask is because it's, this strikes me as so funny is like, it's so interesting. All these people from this very specific style of life. Like, I, I feel like there's certain places in the United States that like, just life is different. Like, los angeles i have a one of my best friends lives in los angeles and his wife is in the entertainment industry and he's just like their life is just different than mine like they're always talking about screeners and these weird things that they're going to and then like you know friends who live in dc who basically everything is about politics and government and things going on So like the this is a long-winded way of asking like what are the conversations like that you guys are is it still about that like dc world or are you guys talking about like just wholly different stuff about your life now in in west virginia
1: sort of a mix actually so oh. the people who are still dc based and come out on the weekends there's still a lot of you know asking about your job and, and how that's going my husband's a musician and he hates that stuff so he avoids it but then we also talk about certain things that are um are just part of our life out here because the weekend people want to know what's going on you know Mm -hmm. who's having a party what developments have happened since the last time they were here so you know we get to trade in that kind of currency too so it's really the best of both worlds Mm -hmm. we have it's just so completely different people come out here and we do game nights you know on the weekend where we all sit around and play board games and There's a lot of drinking that goes on here. And, um, you know, you can hike because there's tons of hikes and Mm -hmm. things like that. All the men have gotten into a certain kind of motorcycle riding. It's called dual sports. Okay. So you can ride on the road, but it's not really road riding. They ride up and down these mountains on gravel trails and things like that. And these are all retirement age (laughs) my husband's gotten into it yeah it's really fun so there's like motorcycle roving motorcycle gangs friends of ours come up for the weekend just to ride motorcycles Yeah,
0: i love that this area is like a rural martha's vineyard for dc people it's like everyone is flocking to this one place for like weekends
1: yeah and it's funny you invite some people and they never take you up on your invitation because it's west virginia and they just picture like something out of deliverance right Mm -hmm. but then the people who do come up often fall in love and want to buy a place. There's no place to buy. So, um, because it's just so charming it's, you know we have little things for us the guest house has a wonderful restaurant and bar that's like a top rated restaurant and bar it's only open on the weekends but you know if you need sophistication you go there there's some local places there's the cutest little general store that gets the best local ice cream you know like all these little things some friends of ours just uh, are opening a gourmet pizza place and a craft beer and wine place and mm-hmm. i can't tell you how excited we all are <laughs> about that because there's no restaurants out here except for
0: just a few right mm-hmm. so yeah it's really it's so charming so has this become like your guys permanent residence is this where you guys live right year round now
1: yeah we're west virginia residents where uh it's really interesting we've lived in dc and northern virginia and um maryland and are used to those bureaucracies Mm -hmm. and so when we try to do things out here like normal citizens you know pay taxes register cars stuff like that we're always just blown away at how completely casual everything is oh i didn't pay my taxes for a year oh no problem just you know drop that check in the mail really
0: (laughs) oh my god um so what had what has been the biggest life adjustment for you guys since becoming full-time West Virginia residents and in this area of town where despite the area of the world country where despite having these people that have been in your lives probably for a long time is a wholly different lifestyle and experience aside from the fact that you went from working in the government now to being a you know well-known author aside from that aspect what's been like the biggest life change for you guys (laughs) Well, it's
1: practical things, really. I mean, what is food? The last town we lived in, I think, had every grocery chain in the world within five minutes of my house, right? And hundreds of restaurants. And now it's 40 minutes to drive to the nearest grocery store. And that grocery store is a Walmart, which I had never even been in a Walmart before I moved out here. And, you know, all you can get is Walmart food. And and I appreciate it. Believe me, I understand. And the selection is probably better than I had any reason to hope. But mm-hmm. but it's so different. And And there are no restaurants. I mean, I was so busy before we got takeout or ate out at least twice a week. Mm-hmm. And there's no place to get restaurant. I've cooked so much in the last three years. It's crazy. So that's one thing kind of silly. But the non-silly thing is there's just not a lot of health care. And mm-hmm. um, as I mentioned to you before, I have a couple um ongoing conditions that require specialists. And if there's an emergency, there's nothing, nothing. It's uh, We just went through this flare up. And um, I, I still have to wait a couple months before I can get into Johns Hopkins to see mm-hmm. a
0: specialist. And like for so along those lines, you mentioned, you know, you're your husband and some other people doing like these like motorcycle things and and stuff like that and you mentioned cooking for you like are there aspects of this lifestyle that like not having you know an in-depth understanding of like your conditions and things like has being able to go out and hike helped or like your life slowing down have those things like helped your you know your ability to to stay healthy on most situations i know that right now you're experiencing a you know a pretty bad. condition. De- <laughs> Alma is, uh, is playing hurt today. She's, pitch, she's being wonderful and doing this with <laughs> us, but are there aspects of the life that have kind of helped those situations or is it just sort of something that you've always had to live with and there's not much you can do?
1: Well, yeah, I try not to think about it. It doesn't flare up too
0: often. So this was a total
1: surprise, mm-hmm. but living out here has just changed me completely. I mean, before You know, I had an incredibly stressful life in the intelligence community. For a long time, I worked complex contingency operations, which means basically war. Anytime Mm -hmm. there was like a combat situation or humanitarian crisis, I was in war rooms all the time. You know, I was in the office of the Secretary of Defense for the Iraq War Planning. Super, super stressful. When we first moved out here, I realized I could not calm down. And I... I thought, okay, this is a huge mistake. It took about six months, but then one day I realized I was sitting at the kitchen table, drinking my coffee, looking out at the trees, and I had managed to calm down. So mm. it, it's been super beneficial. Yeah, I just love it. It's so flipping beautiful. Everywhere mm. you look, it's just mountains and trees. At night, if the sky is clear, you can see the Milky Way. I mean, you just stand there and gawk with your jaw open. We see wild animals. A bobcat went across our yard a little while ago. And it's just and wonderful. We sit around and do bonfires at night, drinking like things, And uh,
0: really nice. I, I need you to know, as a person who also is horrible at relaxing and slowing down, you're giving me hope because my... My boss, literally this week when I was uh, I was traveling for work, she told me that she, her um, like 2023 goal for me was be lazy. She's basically like, I need you to be 20% less productive because it's just setting too many expectations for yourself from other teams. And it's just unsustainable. It's like hearing that someone who also had such a hectic life and couldn't relax can get there. You're giving me hope for the future. I need you to know that. <laughs>
1: You're probably not too far away from us. If you ever want to give it a try, we will have you out here. We have a separate guest house, Uh 900 square foot apartment, actually, in the trees. You're looking down on the forest. You are more than welcome to come out anytime. We feed you. We feed our guests the whole weekend. We Mm. take you places. You will love it. The only thing we don't have is a hot tub.
0: That's okay. Honestly, listen, I'm a Clevelander. I'm used to the cold and wet. And actually... Cleveland is surrounded by, um, they call it the Metro parks. It's basically, it's like an emerald circle all around Cleveland. A lot of people don't know about if they've never been here. We have, it's something like 3,500 square miles of parks all around Cleveland that people don't realize. So I'm actually, when you mentioned like hiking and stuff that I'm literally reading a book right now called on trails because I'm a, I'm a runner and I love trail running and I love just being out in nature. And so I that stuff extremely interests me. And like, um, During the new year, like for New Year's Eve, like I went to a remote cabin um, in Pennsylvania. So this stuff very much is, is up my alley. Um, Have you found yourself becoming more of like an outdoorsy person because of this new experience?
1: I kind of hoped we would, but, um... My husband is not very keen on hiking. <laughs> mm. If he can ride his motorcycle, he'll ride his motorcycle. So um, I, I try to get out. Everything here is super hilly, though. So I used to be in great shape, but I'm not anymore. And I'm trying to get back into it. So I'm hopeful that I will start to be more physical. But the other thing is my business has really taken off between the books and other stuff we're trying to do. Uh, I It's hard to... Um, I really have to fight to sort of pull myself away from the computer, sadly.
0: Speaking of your books, I am curious if this new lifestyle has, again, like for most people, I ask them, like if the thing that they're passionate about and that they love has affected their writing, I imagine for you, it is directly connected to your writing because like you talked about, you had this long career in the government and then you retired. And like, I, I think... I'm, I'm guessing, but I imagine a lot of your writing fans who especially discovered you from like the hunger or the deep or the fervor, like might not know that you have this whole other life. And so has there been like, how does this new lifestyle affect your writing? Like, I imagine you have more time and and peace to be able to do it, but are there other aspects that this new style of life has influenced what you write about?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, definitely I have more time because I Mm -hmm. almost completely dropped the consulting business. I just have one customer that won't leave me alone. But um, (laughs) so I have more time to write. And what that really equated to was more space to write in my head because I didn't have to juggle all this other stuff all the time. So now I can dwell more. And also I'm finding I'm coming up with a lot more ideas for things. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, and everybody finds it weird that I write Like these historical horror novels, but I also write spy novels. And I admit, it's weird. What can I Mm -hmm. tell you? It's because I, you know, grew up loving speculative fiction. And so back when I was still working in intelligence and they don't like you to write about it when you're working in it, Mm -hmm. that was just the natural go-to. And I got the opportunity to start spy novels after I retired. But um, so, so that's part of it. The other thing horror people find funny is I live in an area that, you know, like has... Bigfoot legends and UFO legends and all the stuff that it's it would seem to be tailor made for frightening people like uh, abandoned cabins and mm-hmm. you know noises at night. We've heard some really crazy noises, but but it doesn't scare me. It's because I write horror novels, but it is a great atmosphere for. All my neighbors tell me these stories they make up, um, thinking they're going to scare me. It's really funny. Mm-hmm. I was actually and just then, gonna, um, oh go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Well, and then then there's the other thing where I have this idea for a project that I want to write, like a chapter, a novel in chapters that's based in what is Lost River, because Lost River is such an interesting place where this cauldron of opposites, like we're so sur- it's a blue oasis surrounded by red state people, right? All these highfalutin city slickers surrounded by incredibly very nice, but you know, country people, mm-hmm. um gays surrounded by very religious conservative people, tons of Mennonites around here. Mm-hmm. Um it's just really interesting. And then when you you know there's meth labs uh probably not too far from us, you know, stuff like that. It's um it it makes you think of very interesting stories. And I think it would be a great example of kind of what the country's going through right now, where you have just competing ideologies that have to live next
0: to each other. I was just I was just going to think, like, to, to say, and if this ends up being a good idea for you, we could remove this part of the podcast. But, like, it feels like this is a perfect blend of, like, the two things you write about, like, horror and, like, these historical, like, creepy stories blended with the, like, government aspects of stuff because it really does like you're absolutely right the setting you have is like a perfect dichotomy of exactly what's of going on in the world but also like I feel like there could absolutely be horror undertones because of like you said being like in the backwoods in an abandoned cabin and these extremely differing ideologies and like people seem nice but in reality they really hate each other and then all of a sudden like I feel like This is like a perfect blend of the two styles of writing you have.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of potential here, but I think my agents are a little afraid of it because it's such a mix of genres. Like almost everything I do is a mix of genres anyway, but this is like so hard to define. So who knows, starting to write the stories when I have a few minutes and, Mm. you
0: know sneak them in there. One's a Bigfoot story. I never thought I'd write a Bigfoot story. Yeah, honestly, that is really interesting though because I'm currently querying a novel and as a, I am finding as a unpublished author, even one who like does have like a pretty good connection at this point of the author community, like I am finding that literary agents very much want you to be in a genre Like you need to be able to define what your book is because, and it makes sense, they need to be able to sell the book. Um, But it is interesting for someone who has so many books published and so many extremely popular books published that even your your agents are like, it still needs to be some. It needs to be at least sort of genre specific so that we can, I assume, market it and and all that interesting stuff.
1: Well, it's kind of, I don't want to say worse than that, but it is worse than that. This has come up a lot, actually, as I've been talking about Red London, And that is, it's kind of rare when you're already established in one genre for Mm -hmm. publishers to let you even write in another genre. Mm -hmm. And it's not because authors can't do it. Most authors, I think, could write in multiple genres. It's the marketing side. It's so hard to market. And if you think about it, You know, I have no right to expect anybody who likes horror novels to also like spy novels Mm -hmm. or vice versa. So all the marketing tends to be about, you know, follow this author, follow this author. But if every other book you write is something they're not going to be interested in, they're going to you know, they're not going to be as interested in you. They may not pick up any books they see with your name on it, you know, when they walk into the bookstore. It's really been eye-opening, and
0: um, we're still trying to figure out how to square that circle. Okay, okay, that's I want to get into that a little bit. That's a really interesting point, because, again, for people who are listening to this, they may know you from, like I said, like the, the, I discovered you from The Hunger, and then I devoured The Deep, and then I loved The Fervor. And I know that you wrote Red Widow, like a couple years ago. So, like you said, you had already established yourself as sort of like a horror novelist, this person who writes these you know, historical based very creepy, very wonderful stories. And then you wrote Red Widow, which is I don't want to say like based on your background, but like it's much closer to the career that you had and Red London is kind of like the second book in in that aspect. So, what was that process like for you when you wrote Red Widow first and you were basically like, okay, I'm going to write this book that is much more spy based and like, and things that are from my quote unquote past life. Like what was that process like? And I guess sort of like if it also extended into Red London as well.
1: Well, you know, um, for me, I always have like a reason why I want to write a book. Mm -hmm. You know, if you read the historical horrors, you may feel like there's certain political undertones that come out and that's because you know the first question people ask you when you write historicals circles is why should we care about this event that happened in the past mm-hmm. right so you try to show the parallels between the past and what we're going through today and as I was doing that I realized how important that is to have in a book you know to have a reason why you're writing it a theme something that you're trying to drop people's attention to and make them think about and I definitely had that in mind um I actually had no idea for the book before my publisher, my editor, and I were having breakfast one day, and she said, You know, you're retired now. I know you've always wanted to write a spy novel. Do you want to give it a try? And I was like, Why? I mean, <laughs> because there were two things. One is I I kind of wanted to prove something that, you know. Some I really like some writing, spy writing, but a lot of it I don't because, and a lot of people feel the same way who've been in the business because it has very little bearing to do on the actual job. And there are a lot of interesting questions that you have to face as an individual, moral, ethical, all kinds of that stuff Mm -hmm. Um, when you work in the business. And I thought it would be really doing a service to the public as well as you know my former colleagues if we can raise more of this right mm-hmm. as part of the, the discourse and also because i wanted to have female leads because uh the intelligence community has wonderful wonderful professional women in their force and you just really don't see them well represented in tv or movies or books mm-hmm. they're always you know like no disrespect to homeland but you know we're not all like that okay <laughs> we're not declared clear names And so I really wanted to show just really how wonderful the women in intelligence are. So I had this mission. And then the other thing was, I knew this thing. Red Widow was actually based on a true story. Mm -hmm. All the details have been changed, but it was a true story. It's something that happened when I was at CIA. And when it happened, I was like, man, this would make a great story one day. So I resurrected that and, and we went to town. So I love writing this by novels. One reason is because they're so much easier for me. because mm-hmm. That was my life for over 30 years. So it's automatic when something happens. I, I should also say part of what I do as a consultant is I'm a futurist. I'm a futurist in emerging technologies. But what that means is we're always thinking about what are the implications of a development, whether it's technology based or societal. What are the implications for the intelligence business? How is this going to change? So I have this automatic mindset. So when I see something happening in the news, I'm automatically thinking of what's the story there? You know, mm-hmm. how does so it's so much easier than writing the historical horrors, which are so much work.
0: I, does it? So that was I was actually going to be one of my questions, but you you sort of answered it there as like does it feel different to write these versus the historical ones, the historical, like horror. And obviously it does click. You said it's sort of like second nature for you at this point to just, they, you know, a lot of people say like, write what you know. And this is like that to the truest for, but you mentioned one thing that I wanted to ask you one more, like to get back a little bit uh, before we get into Red London, like to get back to about like where you're living now, you mentioned that you, you know, you're a futurist and like you're a lot of like what you did was basically being like, what, is going on with this technology and how will it affect everything, <laughs> I suppose. And you live in a, a aspect of the country that is like, I don't want to say like, it's slower to catch on to historical things, but like, it's interesting to me that you guys have chosen a place that is so much slower and much more like, you know, at, at peace with what's going on around them. Like, do, do you feel that? contrast is like either when you're writing or thinking about consulting since you still have like the one client like does it feel strange to you to have those two aspects in your world like this life around you and then this thing you're thinking about for the future
1: you know it probably would if not for the pandemic Hmm. the pandemic really changed our relationship to work the availability of information our ability to interact with people virtually and so it it that, I think, you know, introduced a lot of tools that just make my life easier. Mm -hmm. And and that, you know, I follow a lot of tech news and now they are very conditioned to push information so I don't have to like attend conferences or go meet with somebody or something Mm -hmm. like that. The other thing is, this is our little secret here. We have the best Internet in the entire state of West Virginia. It is actually better than most people in D.C. We have fiber optic to the door. Oh, my God. I know. It's because one of the lawyers for the county telecommunications company had a place here. And so he made sure Mm -hmm. that the uh, that we got upgraded first and we pay for it. uh, Not as much as you think. I mean, we pay for it. Mm -hmm. But. It made all the difference. And and, and that's a big draw for a lot of the people here because they Mm -hmm. can work from here at least part time Mm -hmm. and uh, and still enjoy. Yeah. So it's funny, but I I really think it was the pandemic made a big difference in, in our ability to say, yeah, let's give it a try and live full time out
0: there. I will say no one else will know this because you and I are the only ones who can see the video we're on. But you do have a very clear video. I will say it's it's much crisper than most people that I interview over Zoom. So job well done with the fiber optics. Um, <laughs> let's. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about Red London, because you mentioned Red Widow being sort of based on a, a true story. Obviously, like you said, everything was changed for obvious reasons. Um, can you kind of tell my listeners a little bit about Red London and then like where the ideas for that one came from as as much as you can share, I suppose?
1: Sure. So Red London is the second book, but um, really it's the it's the main character from the first book continues over. You could read Red London first. I just mm-hmm. want to say that because it's almost a standalone. So um, in in this book, Lindsay Duncan, who's the main character, she's um, forward based out of London now. She's going to be handling a very dangerous, high level um mole asset that they have in russian intelligence so she wants to be a little closer to him so it's easier to meet while she's in london she's asked by mi6 with cia's permission if she would work with them they're trying to flip the wife of a russian oligarch who's living in london Mm -hmm. Um, and the woman is british she's a british aristocrat and uh in this world vladimir putin is gone. He disappeared. There's a new Russian president, very mysterious, came from nowhere, uh, ex-KGB, like Putin was. And while he's saying all the right things on the international stage, you know, Russia wants to be a good world citizen, et cetera, et cetera. MI6 and CIA don't believe him, and they think there's something else going on. So they want to take um, the Russian oligarchs billions of dollars off the table so the new Russian president won't get his hands on it. So um, and of course, all that money is being kept in these hidden offshore accounts and only insiders would have that information. So that's why they want to try to get Emily, the wife, to flip on the husband. There's a lot of other little things going on in it. And I guess we can talk about that. The other major theme is the rise in private intelligence. But as for how I got the idea for this, I mean, it's not a stretch to say that it it goes all the way back to 1994. Mm-hmm. In 1994, the British prime minister created a new class of visa for foreigners so they could live in the UK if they invested roughly a million dollars, a million pounds into the British economy. Mm-hmm. They did this at the exact same time that the Soviet Union was falling. And we were seeing this new class of businessmen, now the oligarchs, rising up. But these were not like, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? People who were pulling themselves up by their bootstrings. They were pretty much looting mm-hmm. <laughs> the former Soviet infrastructure, taking all these government things and privatizing them, you know, for their own gain. Mm -hmm. And also the KGB, which had been seeing that this was going to come about, right, that the Soviet system was going to fail, started funneling money to some of these guys to make them beholden. And and it's reflected today to this very day where you see the closeness between the oligarchs and Putin and the security service. But at that time, I was an analyst who was looking at a lot of um, basket case countries. That's what we call them. It's a term of art. It's a country that No longer govern itself, you know, like Mm -hmm. Somalia or Afghanistan, that kind of thing. And we were wondering if Russia was going to become a basket case country. I mean, the economy crashed. Mm -hmm. The people were plunged into chaos. Um, Drug use was high. Illness was very high. Just it was just insane. And wondering what's going to happen and wondering what the hell were the Brits thinking? They're opening these doors to this criminal enterprise. How is that not going to catch up with you? So it's taken 20 years, but it's caught up with them. And it started in 2018 when they saw, when the, Sergei Skripal was poisoned mm-hmm. by the Russians. Yeah. Raisinly came on UK. It really caused this sort of crisis uh, among the Brits. You know, what have we done? The Russians are just emboldened to do whatever they want. And then it really, they had to make a decision with the invasion of Ukraine and, you know, whether or not they were going to support the sanctions and punish all these people who had made, really rooted their tentacles in the British economy. Mm-hmm. So it was just really coincidental <laughs> that my book was coming out just as that, um, you know, I was writing that book just as it happened,
0: but it, it is very timely. I was just going to say, like, I I need people to understand that it often takes, you know, an author, call it even if you're very quick four to six months to write drafts of novels, then you have your back and forth with your editors and then you have the marketing that needs to go in and you have to, you know, announce the release of the book. And that's usually a year later, like for this book to be coming out now (laughs) with everything going on in the world. And like, I, I think, I don't know. It's just, it, it, like you said, it is, it's crazy that it's happening at this exact time. And you mentioned like the sanctions. I feel like that I remember that all happening at the very beginning of all this, like, um, the most, I am a soccer fan In addition as other things, but like, I remember, um, Chelsea, Chelsea football club's owner was Roman Abramovich, who yeah. it was, he was an oligarch and like Britain basically for more or less, they forced him to sell the team because they're like, all right, this is like, you are like the most public connection to us and Vladimir Putin. And like, it is, you're right. Like it's just so interesting to to think about all of these things. And I wanna ask, like, is this is somewhat connected. Kind of, I mentioned I'm mean, this book called On Trails. And the the author said that he is one of the things he does for a living is he's like a trail builder, which has been really fascinating to learn about the fact that like, uh-huh. when you walk through like he says on the Appalachian Trail. Um but like one of the things he talks about is like once you become someone who has to think about like where do you put certain angles and switchbacks on my stuff. He's like, it's impossible for me to go out in the woods and just be there. I'm thinking about how would I create this path or what sightline would I use? And so this is all to say, like for you, knowing so much about the world that most civilians will never understand and will never know, are you able to just like sit back and look at the news or events in a way and just be like huh and like take it at face value or are you constantly are your wheels constantly turning not just like from a ooh, that would make a good story standpoint but like I imagine you can understand things several steps ahead from any civilian that could possibly grasp what's really going on
1: well it, it would that's a very nice thought um, <laughs> when it comes down to whether it's not, whether or not it's a Topic I worked on. Mm. Like any intelligence professional, if it's not their area of expertise, uh, with the exception of some case officers, they're not gonna bullshit you, right? They're mm-hmm. gonna say, I don't know, that's not my area of expertise. I would imagine it might be something like this or that. So for instance, I am not a Russia expert. I had to do a fair amount of research on the oligarchs and you know, I remembered the whole thing with the Brits because I was want I had to watch basket case countries while it was happening. So I had to watch Russia. But um so sometimes, sometimes I can say, you know, like tech stuff. I'm very good at uh, you know, what's the ramifications, what's the implications of this particular kind of technology, how far are we out? I can do forecasting, but um some geopolitical stuff, not so much. And mm-hmm. um my area of expertise is something that thank God we don't see very much, which is genocides and atrocities. Mm-hmm. That was very big in the 90s, 1990s. Luckily, we've moved away from that. We're probably moving towards it again.
0: Seems that way. I, mean, I was just going to yeah. say, I feel like every other story you see, whether it's like the Washington Post or Politico or whoever it is about the war in Ukraine, it's just like, you know, X agency says that there are war, you know, war crimes going on. It's like as a, just an everyday civilian, I'm like, yeah, I that seems fairly obvious to me like it's
1: yeah yeah
0: but holding people accountable for them is very
1: hard and unfortunately a lot of times these types of conflicts you know create militias and um you know these partisans who take things in their own hand and that's when we really start to see things going out of control Uh so yeah Um, it bears watching
0: yeah so from a writing standpoint, are you going to continue doing, like you mentioned, kind of beginning to work on a story about where you're living now? But is your plan to kind of go back and forth between like horror adjacent historical horror novels and then like spy things? Is like, is this something you want to keep doing, or do you find yourself drifting more like towards writing the the thrillers and mysteries and spy stuff, or is it just you enjoy doing both?
1: You know, I am just in trouble. I don't. <laughs> It's Um, so the next book is going to be a horror novel but it's not even historical i wanted to try a contemporary so so there's that that's already Mm going to change um i've been embraced by the horror community which is wonderful and it's a great community Mm -hmm. too so i want to continue in that but i'm i I don't know we'll see if the next novel is not that popular then i'm really going to have to read group and try to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. On the spy side, I really like writing that stuff, and um, I'm really good at like finding things in the news and saying, damn, that would make a good story. Mm-hmm. I branched out this year, and I write stories for Amazon. Mm-hmm. Amazon Original Stories. They pre- produce like novella-length stories, and so I did a historical horror for them that came out last year, and we've got a kind of spy science fiction one that's coming out this year. And hopefully, I'll do some more. So, so, I have outlets, but it all goes back to that marketing thing. Mm-hmm. you know, that it might be limiting my ability to grow to grow an audience. Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: um, okay. I have one last question for you. You've been very gracious with your time having that felt well. I really appreciate it. I always end my conversations by having the author give just one recommendation. It can be a book. It can be, you know, somebody recommended Go for a Walk. Uh, Mallory O'Meara, who we both know, recommended a protein powder. Like it's just one recommendation that you think more people should know about. Again, it can absolutely be a book. But what's something that you recommend more people know about that, that you adore?
1: Oh, gosh, that's tough. I'll recommend something that recommends other things. There's a newsletter put out called Recommendo. I don't know. Do you know? Have you heard of that?
0: I have, but I will let you tell everyone else about it.
1: Kevin Kelly, I believe, who is one of the co-founders of Wired Magazine, started this. And he's got a couple other authors with it. You can subscribe to the newsletter. It's absolutely free. And every Sunday morning in your inbox will be the newsletter and it'll recommend six things. And they tend to be... Sort of the kinds of things you think Wired would be interested in, right? It's like self-improvement, usually through technology or how to manage modern technology better or something. But there's other things in there, too, like great, a new puzzle company that's absolutely great. So if you like recommendations, you want to subscribe to Recommendo.
0: Yeah, I, that's a perfect one. Well, um, I I absolutely adored Red London. I loved Red Widow. I, have, I mean, I'm gushing because I've loved all of the books of yours that I have read. And this was so much fun. I was so excited when your name came up on a list recommended from your publicist. So thank you for saying yes. And thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. And I'm absolutely serious. You got to come out here sometime because they do run on the mountains and it'll kill you.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it absolutely will. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule hoffman And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called